Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians 4, 5-18. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we thank you for these words that are given to us this morning that were written to some of these early church members in Corinth, but were also written for us this morning on this day that are directed toward us and that are for us. And I pray that you would help us to hear them, that you would fill us with all hope, that you would drive away despair, that you would help us to not lose heart as we look at things that are unseen, things that are eternal. Father, help us to see them. By your spirit, we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A few days ago, I was running on the the Swamp Rabbit Trail here in beautiful Greenville, South Carolina, and I was coming towards the end of my run and was trying to push myself a little bit, and as I'm getting to that point where I'm looking forward to being done with my run, I looked down on the ground in front of me on the trail, and somebody had spray-painted directly on the trail, inspirational and motivational sayings. All right, so I'm, I'm like looking down as I'm, as I'm trying to like turn it into the next gear and be done with this run, and what I see before me are things that you would imagine, things like, don't stop, keep going, my personal favorite, you're the best, and you're was misspelled. And so like, I, as I'm, I'm thinking like some, I don't know why those are there, maybe they were part of a race or something, but as I look down towards the end of my run and I see these, I'm not at all inspired by them. In fact, I had to slow down because I started laughing at these sort of motivational messages. And one of the reasons was 
as I'm running, I'm li- I, I like to listen to podcasts when I run. I'm listening to uh, this podcast, and either incidentally or ironically, I'm listening. I had listened to a podcast about these two guys in Scandinavia, some Scandinavian country, who thought that inspirational messages and motivational sayings were so generic that they created, they basically wrote code, they put in all these words that people thought are inspirational, and they were like, a computer can generate inspirational messages. And there's a website called Inspirobot. You may have heard of it. And so you go to Inspirobot, you hit a button, and it gives you the computer. Now, there's not a person on the other end of this. The computer generates an inspirational message for you that's put over like a picture of the ocean. So I had just been listening to that, and then I see these statements. And so naturally what I do when I get back to my office is I open up Inspirobot. I hit the generate button, and it gives me my inspirational message of the day, which I kid you not said this. There is absolutely no reason to not be viciously fine. (laughs) There is absolutely no reason to not be viciously, the viciously is what got me, to not be viciously fine. I think we could probably think of some reasons not to be viciously fine. But I bring this up, of course, because this is the time of year when we are looking for motivation. I mean, it doesn't escape us. I mean, as cynical as you may be about New Year's and New Year's resolutions, you still think about last year. And you think about the things that you did and did not do. And you still think about, how can I motivate myself? How can I not give in the ways that I gave in last year? How can I become a better person? And so we devise ways and methods for being better than we were maybe the last year. And I want to be better than I was last year. And I hope that you do too. But what does it mean to be better? And what does it mean to have a better year? Well, if we're focusing on the things that we can see, if we're looking at things that are visible to us and that we're surrounded by, then what we're we're naturally going to conclude is that for me to have a better year, it's going to be more of certain things probably in my life. It's going to be more money. Let's just be honest, right? We're going to think better is going to mean more money. We're going to think better means maybe better technology that helped me get the things done that I want to get done. We're going to think, of course, better bodies, better diets, healthier regimes, whatever the case may be. Ultimately, you're getting stuff thrown at you right now that's telling you how to do all of those things better. But ultimately, what we think of as better is a year that is free from Adversity, affliction, suffering, and discomfort. I think we could pull the room right now and go, would that make your year better if we took away adversity, if we took away affliction, if we took away bad things that happened to you that you did not plan? I think all of us would give a resounding yes. That would make everything a lot better. Let's do that. Well, if Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a button on his chest that you would press and it would generate an inspirational, motivational quote, this is what would come out, this passage that Catherine read to you this morning. And we have 13 of his letters that back this up, that Paul is encouraging us 
by the words that he gives us this morning. He's motivating us and what it means to look like to persevere in this life, to continue going, to actually have a life that he would say is better, is much better. And it's not trite, and it's not pithy, and I guarantee you you couldn't write a code that a computer would generate this for you. He's honest, and he does not start with what you can do better. He doesn't start with you at all. He starts with what has been done for you. And then he talks about how knowing what has been done for you might change you in the sense that you react to the things that happen to you in a completely and surprising and different way. The theme, maybe his quote that would come out first, the theme of this passage that this chapter begins with, the part we didn't read and then it ends with, is this statement, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And this morning we could maybe ask this question to Paul, why in the world will we not lose heart? How can you possibly say we do not lose heart? There's a million reasons that I can think of and you can think of and you may be thinking of now to lose heart. To lose the desire to continue on. To not think that maybe it's all just meaningless. And Paul wants us to see that if we're in Christ, the things that we think will make our lives worse, like trials, like suffering, like affliction, like opposition, and even our weaknesses are not a reason to lose heart. Instead, what he's saying is with our hope in the proper place, these things might even cause us as individuals to be little epiphanies in the world. Little manifestations of the light that's shining in the darkness that he's saying that these things might actually make your next year better in a way that you could not comprehend because this is the way that God typically works and Paul is an example of that. One of our themes during Advent in every Advent, is basically this question of why is God waiting so long? That we're waiting for him to return, that we're waiting for the world to be made right, that we're living in this time in between. And one of the things that we talked about during Advent is how difficult it is for us to evaluate, how easy it is for us to evaluate everything in our life based on what we see right now. It's just human nature. It's what we do. It's so easy for us to look at what we see right now and draw all of our conclusions based on that. And yet what we also said and what has been said of God is that a million years to him is like a second. A million years to him is like a second. A million of our dollars is like a little penny to him. And I heard one man say, well, if that's true, then, well, God, can I just have one of your pennies? And his response, God's response to him was, well, yeah, just wait a second. <laughs> Super corny. Sorry. Uh, so the question this morning is this. As Christians, what reasons does Paul give us to not lose heart? Why does he tell us to not lose heart? Paul gives us, I think, at least four different reasons. There's a lot more in this. We're going to just look at four. And we're just going to start at the beginning and work through this. Four reasons that we have to not lose heart. When we get to verse 16, when he says, don't lose 
heart. He basically recaps after that and gives us more reasons to not lose heart. But the first one is this, and it's, I'm drawing it from verse 6, that we do not lose heart because his grace toward us is a miraculous treasure. We do not lose heart because his grace toward us is a miraculous treasure. Listen to verse 6 again. The same God, the same God who said, let light shine in the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The ultimate epiphany moment in your life, if you are a Christian this morning, did not come about because a decision you made at summer camp as a result of a well-placed gospel presentation. It did not come about simply because a co-worker looked at you for the first time and decided to tell you about Jesus. It didn't come about simply because you started asking hard questions and reading and studying the Bible. All of those things may have been a conduit, but the fact that you this morning might see your sin and the fact that you might see that Jesus has come to die in your place so that you might have life is because God decided to shine light into your heart. That is a miracle. That is totally undeserved. He has broken into the darkness. He's broken into the darkness of our own hearts. In fact, Paul compares our conversion to creation. That's what he does in that verse. He compares our salvation to creation. What happened in creation? God made all things ex nihilo. He made all things out of what? Nothing. Out of nothing, he made everything. He looked in the midst of darkness and said, let there be light. And there was light. And what Paul is reminding us of through this, he's, he's, he's starting by this, we don't lose heart because you had nothing to do with your salvation. You had nothing to do with your conversion. The only thing that we brought to God was our sin, and yet he has shown his light into our heart. He has redeemed us. He has pursued us. He has made us his own. What Paul is saying, and he says this all throughout the New Testament, is that it all is grace. All of it. He does not accept you or reject you based on how great you were in 2018. He doesn't measure you on how much you accomplished or did not accomplish. The God of the universe doesn't measure you that way. Why do you measure yourself that way? He doesn't do it. This is boundless, unending, unfathomable, Paul is saying, grace that is the greatest treasure that you can ever imagine. It is the greatest gift that has ever been given, and we do not lose heart because the God that we have run away from has run after us has pursued us in Christ, has redeemed us into his family for all eternity. He started this work with dead people out of nothing, and he says, I will complete it, and I will finish it. And you're like, but the things I can see, they just don't look like it's going to turn out that way. We do not lose heart because his grace toward us is a miraculous treasure. But secondly, we don't lose heart because the treasure of his grace is made manifest through our weakness. We don't lose heart about our weaknesses. We don't lose heart about the things that happen in our life that we wish they didn't happen because he says this miraculous treasure, this miraculous gift of his grace is actually made manifest in our weaknesses. 
Look again at verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read these to you again because I just love these words so much. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Don't think about the 1990s band when you hear that term. Like, the jars of clay. So Corinth was known for its clay pots. They produced them, and these were everyday vessels that they used, just like we use pots. They were disposable. They easily broke. They weren't that valuable. They weren't the porcelain vase that you would sit on your, on your mantle to admire and pass down for generations. He says, this immeasurable treasure has been put in these jars of clay, our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then Paul goes on to say, as far as our lives go, let me just tell you about them. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you hear what Paul is saying? That we despise weakness. We despise affliction. We despise trials. We, we despise persecution. And we're not masochists. And I'm not telling you to run towards these things. And neither is Paul. But the mere thought of them causes us to lose heart. And what Paul is trying to tell you is that these are not things that should cause you to lose heart. Don't you see? He put this miraculous treasure into the midst of your fragile life. Your fragile temporary life. He put this treasure in the midst of your life so that even when it cracks, others might see his power and his glory in the midst of your weakness so that his love and his light radiates even through your broken life so that what people see is Jesus. There's that famous Leonard Cohen song, the famous line from his song Anthem. It's like there's a cracks in everything. That's how the light gets in. Paul's telling you the opposite. He's saying that the light gets out through your cracks. When your life becomes cracked, this hope that is within you that, that has been shown into your heart. You see all the imagery that he's using. Light has come down. It's showed into our heart. And now when your life is cracked and broken, that light escapes out. And it actually is something that begins to bless other people. I mean, think about Paul's life for a minute. It is completely perplexing. Paul, over and over again, tells us, I mean, this is his phrase, that his life is in Christ. It's hidden in Christ. That he has, you know, everything that now that he has Jesus. And every time the man steps on a boat, it wrecks. Every time. How many times has he shipwrecked? Over and over again. My life is hidden in Christ. And then he gets on a boat, he's in prison, he's all of these other things. He's constantly afflicted and persecuted and struck down. What gives? Verse 10, he tells us, I carry in my body, in my body, the death of Jesus. I carry in my body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in my body. That is a crazy statement. 
that we haven't begun to grasp the depth of. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that just as Jesus' suffering and death led to greater life, those who have been, of us who have been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into his death. We carry his death and resurrection within our body so that even when we suffer for his sake while looking at him, it actually leads to greater life and redemption both in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. That's not something you're going to learn anywhere else. (laughs) That's not something you're going to find anywhere else. My greatest prayer for myself and the church this year that we would simply believe that because nothing else in our culture is going to teach us that. What if our continual prayer was, Jesus, I know that I'm going to suffer. Help me to suffer well so that even when the cracks develop, that what people see is the light of your power of redemption that comes emanating forth. Jesus, maybe our prayer should be, I know I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. Help me to think about that so that I might die well. Do not lose heart, Paul says, about your weaknesses, about the things that you think are going to crack you and, and to make your life worse. He says, this is actually where his glory might be most clearly revealed to the world around. Thirdly, we don't lose heart in verses 13 through 15, because we are united to Christ in his resurrection. I won't spend a ton of time on this one, but it's really glorious. What is he saying? He's saying that knowing that in Christ's death is the death of death, we don't have any reason any longer to be afraid. That's all he's saying. In Christ's death was the death of death, and I carry around his death in my body, so why in the world would I be afraid of death? He's taken away death. He's crushed death, is what Paul is saying. And so Paul is saying, so even as I die, and he says this, I think, in a couple ways. Literally, he will die, but also he dies in a lot of ways every day. That even as he is dying every day, what he's saying is that more and more grace is extending to more and more people so that it may increase thanksgiving and give glory to God. So what Paul is saying is that I, with I've been raised, I'm going to be raised, I've been raised with Christ, and I'm going to be raised up on the last day, so I don't have to be afraid of what I say. You know, Paul was like a, from what we understand, was like a, like a small, skinny, bald head, like spindly-legged little man. And yet he was bold. He was bold in what he's saying here. He was bold in what he was saying to the people of Corinth. And I guess of all the reasons to not lose heart in this life, the greatest reason of all is that death is not victorious. Death is not hanging over your head like it once was. It has been crushed and you will be raised with Christ. And the last one, the fourth reason he gives us for not losing heart is that we don't, and I think this is sort of a summary, this is verses 16 and 17, is that it's sort of a summary of all that he said before, is that he says these beautiful words, that we don't lose heart because the weight of our affliction is light compared to the weight of glory that is coming. You see, he he has like a scale in that sentence. The weight of our affliction is actually really light compared to the weight of glory. That is coming. It is light, he says, and it is momentary. And I know that we want to get mad at Paul at this moment because we've we have gone through some afflictions. We've gone, we're going through some right now. I mean, in a room this size, there's a lot of afflictions, there's a lot of trials that are going on 
And you're saying, Paul, you're saying to me that these afflictions are light? That's insensitive, right? You're saying that they're momentary? And he's saying, yeah, they're momentary. Your affliction might only last a lifetime. It might just be one life. That's how long your affliction might last. It may only just be for a life compared to eternity, right? He's saying compared to what you can't see, Whatever your affliction is, is light and momentary. That's how big the thing is that he's comparing it to. Paul knows something about affliction. We've talked about that a little bit. But listen to the way he describes it. And a few chapters later, he says, and this is, I, I, this is not funny. To, this is not a funny passage. But I laugh at it when I read it every time because it's so like, Bam, 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 bam. And it's so horrible. Listen, he says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. That means without a boat, just floating there. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country. See what's kind of funny? Danger at sea. What has he not been in danger from? I've been in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness Why? So that you might see the glory of God. So that his grace might extend to more and more and more people. Because Paul is saying, this life is glorious and is beautiful. And as much as he values it, it it's like a clay jar. And if you want to ignore Paul and you say, well, what about Jesus? Well, you can't ignore Jesus because Jesus was obviously better than anyone who'd ever lived. He was without sin. And yet Jesus' life was lousy. If I could say that without sounding blasphemous, he had a lousy life. All of his friends abandoned him. He was executed when he was 33 years old. And Jesus himself tells us, there is no servant who is above his master. I don't want to believe those words of Jesus, right? But he says them. There is not a servant who is above his master. And so I think we could go so far as to say, and I'll use this word, it is stupid. And it is pagan-minded to think that if we live a decent, moral life, then our lives will go the way that we think that they should, and we will be blessed in the ways that we think they should be blessed. That is a stupid and pagan-minded notion that didn't apply to Paul and didn't apply to Jesus, but both Paul and Jesus actually tell us it is through death that life comes, and that means death in your own life. Paul is, like I said, you hit the button on Paul's chest and he generates motivation. It will motivate you if you have ears to hear, but he's encouraging us by pointing to the fact That it should be obvious, he's saying to the churches. The church of Corinth was not practicing this. 
He's saying, if you listen to any of the teachings of Jesus, it should be obvious that you will have affliction and you will have suffering and you will have hardship. You will. But they are actually light and momentary compared to the weight of glory that is to be revealed. And so how do we move forward this year? I'll end with this. I think he gives us a little bit of advice in the very last verse. And the advice can be summed up like this. It's really not a whole lot about what you're going to do. He just says this. Stop looking at what you can see. Stop looking at what you can see. What can you see? You failed last year? Great. Get in line. Everybody else did too. You didn't get that job you wanted. You got, a, you got a promotion. You got a demotion. You had a great success. You didn't have a great success. Wonderful. You didn't complete one of last year's resolutions. You look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. You look at the world and you feel like there's no reason to hope. It's all going down the toilet. And he says, stop looking at what you can see. It's transient. It's always changing. You live in a little blip of time in a great unfolding mystery of the history of the revelation of God who is over all things. He says, stop looking at yourself and meditating simply on how you might make yourself better. Instead, look at what is unseen and it will change you because it is eternal. This is what changes us in a present moment and it brings life to those around us. Look at what is unseen. What is unseen Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. When Peter was writing to those who were suffering and being persecuted, this is what he told him as well. He said, you have not seen him. Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The author of Hebrews tells us the same thing about faith. Faith is the confidence, is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance in what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understood that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And after he describes a few people who lived this way, he gives a summary and he tells us this. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive in this life the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them for a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on this earth. People who say such things show that they were looking for a country of their own. If they had been looking, thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. One they do not see, a heavenly one. And listen to these astounding words. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. This may not be what you want to hear this morning. It's not always what I want to hear. But one of the primary ways that our lives become epiphanies in this dark world is that we cling to hope in the midst of a year that will not most likely look any way that you had planned for it to look. The thought that God might use your weakness this year and not your greatest strength to make his name known is not a strange concept in the Bible. It's the primary way in which we see him working in most of the lives of, the lives of his disciples and followers. 
And what Paul is saying is this. Now listen, if that sounds depressing to you, hear what he's saying. What greater joy, what what greater use of a short, temporary life could there be than for more people to receive this grace of God and for God to receive more glory through the many deaths that you may die every day? He's saying there's nothing better. There has been nothing better in my life. And the only possible way that we might see a reason to rejoice in these things is to fix our eyes not on ourselves, not on our circumstances, but on the eternal one whom we do not currently see. But there is a day coming, and it is soon, when every knee will be on, that has ever lived will be bowing before him, and we will see him. And when we see him, here is the promise, we shall become like him. And he's saying, look at that. Fix your eyes on that. Jesus, please come quickly. Let me pray. Father, these are not things that we would have dreamt up on our own. The followers of Jesus would not have thought of these things on their own as well, because this is not the way our minds work. We thank you that your mind is not like ours. Father, we thank you that you bring beauty out of the ashes. We thank, that, thank you that you, lift down, you look down on the, the dung heap and you find us there and you sit us on thrones. And we are seated on thrones even now in the heavenly places, Paul also tells us. And so, Father, help us to look at what we can't currently see. Help us to fix our eyes upon it. Help us to be changed in this moment, not simply through our sheer effort to try to be better people, but by seeing that our lives are hidden in Christ and there's nothing that can harm us or change that. Take it away. Father, we ask this so that we might be light in the darkness as well, not our own light, but your light peeking through all the cracks of our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.